This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. The Killing of Clyde by Vincent Lewis Carella. Deliberations on the Eve of Manhood by Anthony Evans. And The Unhappy Inventor by Jensen Whalen. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. The Killing of Clyde, written and read by Vincent Lewis Carella. Listening time, 12 minutes, 48 seconds. My name is Vincent Lewis Carella. This is called The Killing of Clyde. The dog would not die. He was bred to withstand the rigors of a prolonged fight, and he showed his mettle and he showed his heart. He was the best dog that Simmons ever owned, and he owned plenty. Some were bigger and some were smarter, but none were as sweet with the children and none was as tough. He kneeled beside him to stroke his head. He looked into the dog's eye and beyond it. He stared at the ground where he laid and ran his fingers through what had once been the finest soil in West Texas. The earth here was dead, but the dog would not die with it. He stood in the high sun and cast upon him a small shadow. He took aim and the pistol bucked again. The dog flopped up and curled and his eyes walled in that strange manner they all did after he laid them down and just before they gave up the ghost. His eyes. Dogs. Deer. Men. It was always the same. The iris slowly rises. The whites climb like the moon. And blank go the orbs of perception. They roll up and back, up and beyond, searching for some meaning in a last futile attempt to make sense through sense. Why must we rely upon the weakest parts of ourselves? He was a big bear of a dog, and the children named him Clyde after that orange monkey in the Clint Eastwood picture where he fought men for money bare-fifted in honky-tonks, and where in the end he almost died for the heart of a girl. When he was a pup, they made him peanut butter sandwiches on raisin bread to give him strength and fed him ice cream from a spoon. They gave him cookies and Cheerios, and he grew so big around the middle that it was no surprise he could take the bullets. One, two, three, like a boar. His thick flank heaved, and he coughed a bloody foam, but Simmons could not bring himself to put the gun to his head, though he did the others the same. It was like that with Sarah. The cancer was a bullet fired from the gun of God, and she'd curl up like that, too. She'd writhe in the grip of it with her hand stretched out for something that just wasn't there and her eyes rolled back and often she would say his name. Jeroboam Simmons, what will you do when I'm gone? And he'd smooth back her hair and shush her and she'd fall into a restless half-sleep in which the spoken word was like a salve she needed to ease her pain. Jeroboam, Jeroboam, just send me away. Like some nursery rhyme from the book of death he wrote in his head all those months she laid in a room full of fat black flies in the top of summer, with the hotness coming down like a hammer and him fanning her, holding glasses of water to her lips just to cool her down. All he could do. Clyde shivered with the palsy of the doomed soul that he was, and his legs stiffened, and he bade a long, mournful hound that echoed off in the arroyo and hung in the air with the smoke. Simmons knew that it was close now, and he watched for the final shudder that would end his long year of waiting. Miracles, heroes, even his own death but none of those would come. He asked for strength, and he begged Jesus for clarity of mind on those nights when he thought about what he might do when she was gone. But there were no answers given. He crouched under a wide-open sky, 
a vast blue dome, and he placed his hand on the dog's muscled flank. He told him it was going to be all right. There was no wind, and there was no shadow, and the air rippled above the field behind the house in translucent waves that made him aware of so much more than heat and sun and light that passes through disturbed space. He thought of the ocean, and ripples in a pond, eddies that swirl in creeks and streams, things that ebb and things that flow, transference, passage, what fragile things are housed in flesh. He held the gun to his own head and shut his eyes. He squeezed the trigger to the point of resistance. He could hear the labored breathing of the dog and the cicadas off in the cottonwoods behind the house, click, 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 where the only shade for miles around was cast by the leaves of those four shimmering trees. Beneath them the earth was cool in the morning, and the ground just below the top layer of loam was dark and compact and hard to dig through. He had risen before dawn to chop out the holes with a pick, and the dog watched him curiously. They were neat, box-shaped tombs dug to his armpits, and inside they were cool and damp. He dug four of them, and it took him all morning to do the job, for that's what it was, as were the killings themselves. His job. Acts of mercy. Acts of faith. But not in God or anything that lay beyond this earth or within. There was but one idea he could turn to always when things went bad and luck ran out. Himself. He put the gun down. And what did he ever have but that? Before them and after. He and no other. Sarah came and Sarah left, and between those poles there was a man reborn. Sarah showed him how to change a diaper. She showed him how to protect a baby's head. She sent him back to school and got him off the booze. Sarah. She gave him the little lives that became his own so that he could grow up again the right way and see through the eyes of a well-loved child to the world as it should be seen, wondrous, benevolent, kind. He learned how to live that way and he learned how to love, and then it was gone. He looked down at Clyde and the dog looked back at him. He craned his head up and back and there was a moment of clarity in which the two were once again on familiar ground. Man and dog. Dog and man. Words were often wholly insufficient between them. Clyde could read him in an instant. The look on his face, the movements of his eyes, the slightest changes to his cheek muscles or mouth. A dog knows a man better than a man knows himself, and Clyde put the question to him as clear as could be. Simmons could feel it in that place where words can't go, and for the first time ever, the dog stared him down. You know that I had to, Simmons said. You know. And it was true. Clyde smelled the cancer before the doc ever did. And on the day that Sarah died, he wouldn't take his food, and then he vanished during the time that Simmons took care of the children. He was gone all that day, and when he came back in the evening, he knew it was done, and he would not go near their rooms. He would not go up the stairs. The dog knew, but in the end he did not fully understand, and he looked to Simmons now for courage enough to trust him this one last time. Easy, boy, Simmons said. That's it. Go to sleep. He said what he had to say to keep hope alive. He told them shades of truth. He spoke in vagaries and platitudes, and since they were children, they could not read the falseness of his words and so accepted what came from his mouth as law, just like the dog. He made them smile with animal noises and funny voices and pulled out their splinters when they were distracted by laughter and thus taught them betrayal, the kind meant to help, not to harm. They knew he did what he had to do to make them feel better later at some other time when the pain and the danger would only be worse. White lies. Mama's just sick is all. Mama's going to get better soon, you'll see. 
The first one came so easy. The second was easier still. Sins don't have one damn thing to do with God. Sins are what you do to yourself, but you don't understand that until it's too late to change. How he went from lying to killing is one thing he hoped he'd never understand, but that's where it all began. Because every lie is the seed of a sin. The dog shuddered and stiffened, and then he went limp, and his eyes lost that sparkle of grace that's in all things living. But the sun was still high above them, and he saw that bright star in the black space where the dog's life began to fade. Some light remained. It was that way with Sarah, and with little Scott, too. But Annie, she closed hers like he asked her to. She'd always done what she was told. He always looked her straight in the eyes and taught her to do the same, so folks would feel you deep inside like a memory, and so they'd never forget. Clyde trembled. His fine orange coat was matted with mud. He pawed at the air. He pawed at the earth. His big, thick paws. No longer would Simmons hear that tick, tick, tick as the dog patrolled the wood floors. No longer would there be floors. No longer would there be home. The tall farmhouse they had their eyes on before they were married. A hundred years old and showing it. Stark, white, alone beneath a stand of golden cottonwoods on that wide open plain. Empty but for memories and bright as a tooth it rose at the conflux of the alluvial mouth of some dead river unnamed. The home that she made for them the life. He kept it going as long as he could until that truck drifted over the double yellow line, until his luck gave out. That son of a bitch was the ruin of them all, Garrett. He was the real killer. He was the one. He should have seen it coming. A beet red, jacked up Ford F-150 with a hot chrome grill and headlights big as plates. The sun flared off the windshield so that all he could see was white where the head of the driver should be until it was full head on and in their lane. And then he saw the fella, in a shirt of black watch plaid and a dark mustache with a look on his face like a boy on a bicycle gone awry. It was Garrett, unlicensed and drunk. He was killed on impact, as was Bill Pope, who never wore his seatbelt out of pride. And that was that. The black cloud of misfortune fell upon him. His partner was dead. His own legs were crushed. And he could work the farm no more. He looked down at Clyde and saw that he was dead. He looked up at the sky. No clouds. No wind. Alone again in the hot Texas dust. Simmons saw the shimmer of the earth at the horizon. He saw the low hills flipped upside down and the sky inverted. He saw the curvature of the plain and the wild undulations where that sun-baked dream meets the low rung of heaven. Behind the house, beneath the trees, he heard the rustling of all those golden leaves that shine when the wind blew and lifted and turned and caught the sun and glittered like tinsel. He buried them all neatly at the foot of the cottonwoods and the ground was oddly colored there on the mounds. Light came through the little gold triangles like pixie dust and fireflies. Through dusk and dust, Simmons wandered in a fugue. The old porch and the screen door made their customary noises and the carpet gave beneath them in the hall. Every step on the staircase was a galleon of memories. He laid on their beds for a time. He closed his eyes on his own. The white goose down, the quilt where the little ones were formed and breached and where Sarah herself slipped off into a nowhere known. He smelled the warm, sweet gasoline that he spilled all over the floor and the walls and the chairs and his hands. The gasoline, a promise and a whisper from a thousand golden dreams. There were motorboats and lawnmowers and minibikes, 
Esso stations and sun oil cans and shell signs. Hot summers and fumes that rose and blurred. Hands that were black and swollen and cut. His father's hands. Chainsaws and deadfalls and storms. Diesel fumes and trucks. Truckers. Men who waved at a boy dozing in the back of a station wagon. Long road journeys. Fuel pumps that clacked and dinged and buzzed. And oil derricks, those cast iron insects, and miles to go of heat and sleep, of watching the headlights streak across the ceiling of the country squire and the smell of daddy's Marlboros and the muffler. Smoke, hot, dry wood. Simmons smelled the smoke and heard the fire from the feather bed. He heard the children laughing. He heard little Annie singing a song to the rhythm of the tap, tap, tap of Clyde's paws on the floor. The dog would not die. The image of the dog stayed with him all through the burning and beyond. In the flames he saw eyes. There was Grandma and old Alice and that man in the hospital with the tubes in his arms. And there was Ditto and Ray lying there in the mud on Black Virgin Mountain. And there was Samson, the sire of Clyde, dead beneath the tires of a car. And there was Sarah and Scott and Annie and Clyde. There were the eyes again, doing what they do. The eyes of the almost dead look to the sky and search among the stars for answer and access in that sunset moment when all things that see with eyes can see at last. The end. Vincent Lewis Carella's debut novel, The Serpent Box, is scheduled for release this summer by HarperCollins Perennial. His fiction and poetry have been published in Literal Latte, LinnaeanStreet.com, Talking Kitchen, Better Non Sequitur, and Microfiction.net. Deliberations on the Eve of Manhood. Written and read by Anthony Evans. Listening time, 1 minute 32 seconds. Deliberations on the Eve of Manhood by Anthony Kane Evans. Holding onto a snowflake always leads me back to the house and to the net curtains in the front parlour. The advantage of the snowflake over the net curtain is that the snowflake melts. When I am 18 in three short months, I will demand of my mother that she throws out those net curtains. It's either me or the nets, mother. Your call, I'll say, just after I've blown the candles out. Then again, what if she calls my bluff? What if the net curtains stay? I might be forced out, and then I won't be able to sneak back again until after she has gone on her summer holidays. Maybe it's best to just stick to my first two demands, that I don't want her boyfriend to include me as part of his audience when he's telling jokes. Mother, I'll say, before Johnny comes out with another of his jokes, couldn't you just turn to me and say, Mark, Joke approaching. Something like that, which would give me time to make it back to my room before he's got the Scotchman out. What if she calls my bluff on this one, too? I can just see myself leaving home with my battered cardboard suitcase, Johnny calling after me. Mark? You heard the one about the Irish brain surgeon who got shit in his eye? Maybe it's best just to make that one demand. Mother, from today onwards, I'm a vegetarian. Yes. Surely that one can't go wrong. Anthony Evans is a British-born filmmaker and writer living in Denmark. The Unhappy Inventor, written by Jensen Whalen, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 12 minutes, 38 seconds. The Unhappy Inventor, by Jensen Whalen. Every night for two weeks, the inventor dreamt that someone was breaking into his workshop. He soon found these dreams prevented him from falling asleep. 
Exhausted, he tried drinking more than his usual one glass of scotch before bed. He tried valerian root supplements and sleeping pills. He even considered calling his brother Walter, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force who dabbled in hypnosis, but thought better of it when he, he remembered how Walter had a tendency to hold these sorts of things against him. The inventor's fatigue was affecting his work. He was only a screw turn or two away from being nearly halfway done with his greatest invention so far, a large sail and mount for automobiles which, by harnessing the power of the wind, he hoped would reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. Clumsy hands and a dulled mind were not things he was prepared to tolerate. When he did manage to coax himself to sleep, it was restless and panicked. The slightest noise would wake him. After another night of convincing himself that the thumping sound that seemed to be just outside was actually his heartbeat and not an intruder, the inventor decided he must do something. The only way he would ever sleep again was to be absolutely sure his workshop was safe, and the only way to be sure of that was to invent a device that would make it so. That night the inventor went directly to his workshop. He made his way across the back lawn to the shed that he had converted to a workshop and cautiously opened the door. Out of habit, he took quick stock of the room. He would be able to tell immediately if someone had broken in. His workshop was an ordered, efficient place. Besides inventions, there was very little, and none of it was worth stealing. An old stationary bicycle, a sewing machine, and some camping gear. Artifacts from hobbies he had abandoned long ago. Satisfied that everything was where it should be, the inventor set about working on a new creation. For weeks the workshop produced terrible noises and a faint but persistent smell of electricity. He welded and polished. He bolted and screwed. By the end of the second week something was taking shape beneath the inventor's able hands. Gradually, however, he began to notice a startling deficiency unlike anything he had ever seen in one of his inventions. This one was colder than usual. It lacked an essence, a personality. Being a man of science as he was, the inventor hated to even consider the possibility, but his invention was soulless. So, he gave it a name. He thought of several. Personality security robot, robo-guard, autonomous helper bot. But nothing seemed to fit quite right. In the end, he decided to name the robot after the month in which it was first conceived, as a matter of speaking. August the robot was magnificent. When the inventor was in a humorous mood, which was not often, he liked to joke that August was a truly august invention. Although he was noble and majestic to the inventor's biased eyes, August was not a robot in the strictest sense. He was a stationary device, short, squat, and round. He sat on three sturdy legs and might have looked to the unimaginative like a very crudely built stool. August had two motion detectors for eyes, which glowed red, and a small speaker where a mouth might have been. The inventor recorded several different messages for would-be intruders that ranged in severity from amusing to violent. August had one long arm that ended in four pincher-like fingers capable of grabbing and holding weight equal to that of a very large man. He was equipped with a modified car alarm that the man at the automotive supply store had assured the inventor was the loudest and most annoying on the market. While August might not have been able to prevent anyone from breaking into the inventor's workshop, 
he would surely have been able to either scare them off or detain them until the police came. The inventor felt safer each day August grew closer to completion. He had even started to sleep better, and had once dreamed of something other than an intruder in his workshop. Despite this, the inventor still felt that August was missing something vital. Some small adjustments were all that remained, and yet the inventor felt more strongly than ever an overwhelming sense of absence. It was not in the number of bolts or the way he was programmed. It was an emptiness that existed beneath August's construction. August the robot was suffering from a very serious spiritual deficit. The last weeks had changed the inventor. He had never been the type of person to put much stock in anything but science, but the time he had spent alone in the workshop with August had allowed him to consider the possibility that there were things in the world that not even science could explain. He opened August's back panel and at once realized what he had to do. Just to the right of the main circuit board, above the alarm system, but below the central processor, was a sizable hole. August was missing a heart. Immediately, the inventor began to work. He took two small pieces of sheet metal, which he had heated with a torch, and pounded patiently into shape with a mallet. Then he welded one sheet to the other, and using a lathe, gave the heart a crude but recognizable anatomical shape. The inventor was careful to leave one end open. He filled the heart with small pieces of paper, on which he had written the definitions for all of the human emotions he had never fully understood. The inventor filled August's heart with compassion, love, empathy, and grace. He put in kindness, sensitivity, and tenderness. The inventor was sure to give August's heart some of the characteristics he did understand, too. He gave him pride, indifference, and a little bit of loyalty. But most of all, he gave him fear. Soon, August's heart was full. There was so much paper that the inventor had trouble closing the top of the heart and welding it shut without starting a fire. When the heart was finished, he placed it inside August's chest and bolted the back panel shut again. He switched August on and took a step back to see if he might notice a difference. To his surprise, there did not seem to be any improvement at all. August still stood lifelessly in place, his eyes indistinctly red. The inventor was disappointed. But he was also relieved. The possibility of giving one of his inventions a soul had secretly frightened him. For the rest of that afternoon, the inventor ran several tests on August. He tested reaction times and ran diagnostic tests on August's central processing unit. He carefully tested the strength of the arm and conducted stress tests on the weaker bolts and welded joints. The inventor took meticulous notes. With each result, he marked down he felt increasingly comfortable being himself again. He even considered removing the heart, but decided not to because he did not want to remind himself of the lapse in his scientific judgment. Hearts were best left hidden deep inside the chest, where they could more easily be forgotten. By early evening, the inventor was beginning to feel the familiar exhaustion of a long day's work. He double and triple checked that August was turned on before leaving the workshop. On his way out, he made sure to lock the door and shut off the lights, leaving August alone with his own silhouette. That night, the inventor was awoken by the smell of smoke. Quickly, he dressed and made his way through his backyard to the workshop. Because he was a careful man, he kept a fire extinguisher just inside the door. He grabbed it, and with his shirt pulled over his nose and mouth, 
he entered the thick smoke of the workshop. At first there did not seem to be either a source or any flames. A closer look at August, however, relieved the inventor's confusion. August's chest was glowing orange and red. Smoke poured from his eyes. The inventor turned the extinguisher on August until it was empty. He opened the door and windows to clear the room and went outside to meet the firemen, who were no doubt on their way. The sirens were visible almost as soon as the inventor had made it to his front lawn. It was a false alarm, he explained, just a small fire that he had under control in no time at all. The firemen, however, insisted on seeing the workshop and any damage that might have been done, just to be sure, they had said, and also for insurance purposes. Reluctantly, the inventor took them to the back and, pointing to the workshop, said, The fire was in there. I'm not sure what started it. Of course, this was a lie. He knew very well that the cause of the fire had been August. For some reason, the inventor was afraid the firemen would take him away. He was terrified that they would erase all the confidence and fearlessness he had spent the last weeks working so hard to build. A number of the firemen busied themselves by shining flashlights into the workshop to check for any remnants of fire. One of the firemen, an older man with an enviable amount of gray in his beard, stood by the inventor and explained fire safety. He stressed the importance of education and preparation. Fire, he said, is an underestimated killer. Although he did not agree that fire was underestimated, the inventor said he understood. When a younger fireman emerged from the darkness of the workshop, holding August's melted heart, the inventor felt a nervous twitch build in his left eye and continued forward until he was winking very rapidly at the man. Chief, the young fireman said uncomfortably, noticing the inventor's wink, I think we found the source. What have you got there, Miller? Well, sir, it seems like a metal heart. Yes, the inventor said. It is. One of my inventions. A heart. He contemplated giving up some made-up purpose, something scientific and practical. But the moment passed, and neither of the firemen seemed to care much why a metal heart had been in the workshop in the first place. The young fireman explained to the older one what they suspected had happened. August's heart had dislodged somehow, touched a bare wire, and caused the circuit board to short and begin to burn slowly. The plastic covering that sheathed the wires had melted, as had August's eyes and mouth. Slow-burning plastic, the older fireman explained, would account for all the smoke. They pointed to some holes in the heart's welding. There was something inflammable inside here. You see this? The young fireman rubbed a charred piece of paper between his fingertips. All the stuff inside burn up. Anyway, you were lucky. The fire was contained inside your sculpture in there. He nodded his head at the workshop. Not knowing what else to say, the inventor said, Thank you. Thanks a lot. The inventor pictured August's heart growing hotter and hotter inside his body, coming to life. Then he pictured August's eyes melting, the metal of his body creaking, popping from the heat. It was a terrible image. The young fireman set the still warm heart on the grass beside the workshop and kicked it gently with his shoe. I'd wait a little while before handling that. Gradually the firemen gathered their things and made their way back to the truck. The inventor thanked them again. Several of the firemen tipped their helmets as they said goodbye. When the inventor returned to his workshop, he found that things were generally still in order. August was misshapen, and obviously his wiring would need to be replaced, but there was no permanent damage. Uncharacteristically, the inventor decided that cleaning up could wait until morning. He left his workshop and knelt to pick up August's heart. The heart was still too warm to touch with his bare hands, so the inventor retrieved gloves he wore when welding. Holding the heart away from his body with his hands, his arms extended as far as possible, 
the inventor went into his house. He took August's heart to his bedroom, where, exhausted from the night's commotion, he laid the heart on his bed. The inventor removed his welding gloves and sat for several long minutes opposite the heart, allowing it to warm his sheets and blankets. Satisfied that it was as warm as possible, the inventor got in his bed and, careful not to touch August's heart with his skin, fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. The End Jensen Whalen's work has appeared online and in print in Hobart, Bullfight Review, Quick Fiction, LMA, Opium, and many others. He is also a web editor for Hobart. He lives in Stockholm with his wife and son. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>